Writing is a solitary pastime. To invent the characters and stories that readers love, most authors have to lock themselves away from the world, avoiding company and interruptions until the blank page is filled. Not everyone wants to spend all their time hunched over their work, though, and the writers of detective fiction in the 1930s were no different. Anthony Barclay, the creator of the sleuth Roger Sheringham, began organising regular dinners for his fellow detective authors in 1928. This gathering eventually evolved into a more formal organisation called The Detection Club, which numbered Dorothy L. Sayers, Agatha Christie, Ronald Knox, Emma Ortsey, and others among its founding members. They dined together, they drank together, and sometimes they wrote together. The novels they collaborated on aren't necessarily among the best-known works of detective fiction, but they're fascinating all the same. We're so used to the idea of a whodunit being constructed by a single, all-knowing author who invents the solution but keeps it hidden from the reader until the last minute. What happens when a dozen writers work together on the same plot? Today, we're delving into the round robin. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the multi-author detective stories from the early days of the Detection Club that were written in the round robin format, such as Behind the Screen, The Scoop, and The Floating Admiral. Is it possible to construct a compelling whodunit this way? Or is it the case that too many cooks spoil the broth? Let's find out. First, let's look at this idea of the round robin. It's a phrase that has a variety of meanings in different contexts, but they all share a common sense of rotation or passing around. In sport, the phrase denotes a tournament in which each competitor plays all of the others, and in computing it refers to a kind of algorithm used to schedule processes in a sequential and equitable fashion. For our purposes, the most relevant point of origin comes from the practice of creating round-robin petitions in the 18th century. These were often contentious political statements or controversial demands, so all the signatories would write their names in a big circle at the bottom of the document, so no one person appeared at the top, and therefore it was harder to punish an individual for the action of the group. It's no longer the case that people sign things in a circle, but the term is still used to describe a petition that's signed by a group collectively. In relation to fiction, the phrase round robin has a similar meaning. Each writer completes a chapter or section, passing the manuscript on to the next person in the group when they're finished, until the story is completed. It's long been popular as a method of composition, with science fiction and erotica examples from the 19th century. There was precedence in the crime and thriller arena too. Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, and in whose shadow all the detective novelists of the 20th century worked, was one of 24 authors who wrote sections of an 1892 collaborative novel called The Fate of Fenella, alongside Bram Stoker, 
Frances Eleanor Trollope, and Florence Marriott. In the last few decades, the practice has found a new home online as well, with fan communities on forums or email lists writing fan fiction this way. The members of the Detection Club first became involved in constructing round-robin stories through broadcasting, rather than publishing. The BBC had been founded in London in 1927, and was in search of compelling speech programmes to get new listeners to tune in. The Talks Department approached six of the best-known detective novelists of the day, Hugh Walpole, Dorothy L. Sayers, Agatha Christie, Anthony Barclay and Ronald Knox, about creating a round-robin detective story for the radio. The format they settled on is both a formal test for the writers and an excellent way of engaging listeners with the BBC. Today's audience experts would do well to take note. The plan was this. Each author would write one of the story's six sections, with the first three aiming to set up the clues, and then the latter trio unravelling them. Every Saturday evening for six weeks, each author would deliver their part of the story live on air, and it would then be published a few days later in the Listener magazine. Then, at the end of the run, the audience would be invited to write in with their solutions to the mystery, in the form of answers to three questions about the plot, and a winner would be chosen from those who got closest to who actually done it. Sayers managed the whole project, keeping in touch with her fellow authors and also the editors at the BBC about their progress. Walpole, who was to go first, circulated a synopsis for the whole story too so that they all had an idea of the sphere in which they were working. Each section was short, around 1,800 words, so the resulting story isn't a long one. But apparently it was still difficult for Sayers to get her fellow writers to deliver on time. In his book about the detection club, The Golden Age of Murder, Martin Edwards points out that Christie was particularly troublesome in this regard. I suppose this is one of the downsides of collaboration and of broadcasting. You have to write strictly to someone else's timetable. The story that resulted from this process, Behind the Screen, was a success with listeners who heard it on the radio in June and July 1930, despite the -the behind-the-scenes anxieties. It's an enjoyable, fast-paced little mystery, hovering somewhere between a short story and a novel. Perhaps it's what we would call a novella, although I've never been sure exactly what the word count for that is. Walpole sets the scene with some exciting, fast-paced writing, describing how a young medical student called Wilfred Hope discovers the body of the mysterious lodger, Mr Dudden, fatally wounded in the neck and spouting blood behind the Japanese screen in the drawing room. Christie follows on with a chapter mostly composed of dialogue, and she brings the characters to life through their speech in the aftermath of the discovery. Then comes Sayers, who with characteristic precision looks at the weapon, the bloodstains and the beginning of the police investigation. Anthony Barclay and E.C. Bentley bring in more clues and characters, building sometimes haphazardly on what went before. And then finally Ronald Knox winds the whole thing up to its startling conclusion. The BBC got 170 answers to their listener competition about the solution and nobody got it completely right. They awarded the 10-guinea prize to Miss E.M. Jones of Birmingham in view of the excellence of her answers to questions A and B, even though she didn't get C right. The story is certainly readable enough, even if the emphasis on certain aspects feels a bit disproportionate in light of the solution. 
as writers set up clues their successors chose not to make great use of, and so on. It's also worth noting that Ronald Knox's solution most certainly does not obey the rules he had set out in his Decalogue of Restrictions for Detective Novelists. For more about this, do have a listen to episode 9 of this podcast, where I talked about the rules in more detail. This certainly wasn't the first or indeed the last murder mystery to be opened up for competition either. I'll talk more about that in a future episode. Behind the Screen was enough of a success that the BBC came back to Sayers and asked her to organise another round-robin mystery story for the following year, although the people at the talks department did deplore the persistent lateness of the contributions from the various detective novelists, who were presumably mostly unused to writing to a tight deadline like this. In 1931, another group of detection club authors made the scoop in a similar fashion with the BBC although Walpole and Knox were replaced by Freeman Wills Croft and Clements Dane. Once again, it was popular with listeners and brought welcome publicity to the authors involved. The round-robin format worked for detective fiction, even if the process of writing for the BBC brought headaches. What if, Sayers wondered, the detection club could produce a mystery novel all by themselves? Find out how that went after the break. Welcome to the intermission, the brief pause in the episode where I interrupt the sleuthing stories to ask you to do me and the show a big favour. Today I'd really appreciate it if you'd spend three minutes filling out the audience survey I'm currently running for the podcast, which you can find at shedoneitshow.com forward slash survey. It's just a few questions about how you listen to podcasts and what you'd like to see me do with the show to help me with some decisions I'm making at the moment about how to keep this thing running in the future. And to say thank you once you've taken part, I'll enter you into a raffle to win a cherished vintage detective novel. That's how much I appreciate your help. I am willing to go to the post office for this. Right, let's get on with the episode. The Detection Club really wanted to have their own permanent meeting rooms in London. A clubhouse, if you will, for them to use for their dinners and conversations. But in order to have premises, they needed funds. To raise this money then, they decided to write a book, using the collaborative round-robin format from the BBC broadcasts, but with a few extra refinements. These took the form of two rules, set out by Sayers in her introduction to the final volume. Firstly, each author, no matter where their chapter came in the sequence, must write with a definite solution in mind, and indeed had to share this solution to be published in an appendix with the others at the back of the book. Then secondly, nobody was allowed to add complications for the sake of it, meaningless red herrings were banned, and each writer must try and explain in their section what their colleagues had written before. And then in addition to these restrictions, there was no overall synopsis or outline sketched out by the group. The chapters were written in order, with each author only able to read the instalments that preceded their own before they began writing. The book that emerged from this convoluted writing process was published at the end of 1931. The floating admiral was on the cover attributed to certain members of the detection club. It had 12 chapters, each written by a different detective novelist, other than chapter 2, which was written jointly by the habitual husband and wife writing duo GDH and Margaret Cole. It also had a prologue written after the whole manuscript was complete by the club president GK Chesterton. Canon Victor Whitchurch, 
who usually wrote railway-based detective stories that I like very much alongside his day job as a Church of England clergyman, kicked the whole thing off with a chapter entitled Corpse Ahoy. He set the scene with an old countryman fishing enthusiast called Neddie Ware getting up early to try his luck in a nearby river, only to sink his hook into the local vicar's rowing boat, which is bobbing freely on the incoming tide. Inside, he finds the bloodstained body of Admiral Penniston, who lives in a house further up the river, still in his evening dress from the night before. After Whitchurch, who actually died not long after working on this book, came the chapter by the Coles, and then contributions from Henry Wade, Agatha Christie, John Rode, Millard Kennedy, Dorothy L. Sayers, Ronald Knox, Freeman Wilscroft, Edgar Jepson, Clements Dane, and Anthony Barclay. Each tried to abide by the rules that Sayers had laid down, keeping the threads from the previous chapters running, and only writing with a definite solution in mind. Poor Inspector Rudge, the police detective mouthpiece for all of these sleuthing experts, is run ragged by all their different approaches to solving the crime. They have him driving all over the place, dashing up and down the river in boats, and taking trains to London with far greater energy than a detective in a Golden Age book usually exhibits. It's all very entertaining, if very obviously uneven and jerky in places, and somehow the story just about gets to the end without completely falling apart. The chief joy in this, and I think all round-robin stories, is getting to compare the varying styles and approaches of the different authors up close. We all have our favourites and preferences, but it's not often that you get to see them cheek by jowl like this and contrast their handling of the same characters and events. For instance, I really like Agatha Christie's chapter in The Floating Admiral, which is titled Mainly Conversation and in which she introduces Rudge to a garrulous pub landlady who conveniently confirms some alibis and busts others. I do not really enjoy Ronald Knox's contribution in this book, the chapter headed 39 Articles of Doubt, during which he has Rudge sit at a desk and work his way through 39 points of interest from the case as a long list. I just find it quite dull and procedural compared to the hectic energy of the rest of the book. In the same way, I really like Clements Dane's chapter in The Scoop, because she gives much greater emphasis to the character of newspaper secretary Beryl Blackwood than the preceding authors had done, and pens a chapter in which Beryl goes shopping, accidentally buys a puppy, and through her own investigative efforts, makes a major discovery about the murder weapon. By contrast, the more conventional following up of clues that E.C. Bentley offers just seems less fun to me. The chapter headings in The Floating Admiral are worth paying attention to, because I feel that that's where you get little peeks into how the authors were feeling as they worked on this unwieldy project. The fifth writer, John Rode, ambitiously titled his Inspector Rudge Begins to Form a Theory, only to be contradicted by Millard Kennedy on the very next one with Inspector Rudge Thinks Better of It. And perhaps best of all is Anthony Barclay's concluding section, which is called Clearing Up the Mess. Barclay certainly had the hardest job here, and it took him dozens of pages and multiple subsections to get the whole plot to a point where he could reasonably reveal a murderer. The solutions that each author wrote, too, are a delightful part of this book. Some, like Sayers, chose to write an entire background essay about the characters involved, filling in all of their relevant actions before the book begins. 
Others, such as Clement Dane, were far more succinct and frank about the difficulties they had faced in producing their chapters. Dane's one is the eleventh in the book, so she was the last to contribute her possible solution, as Barclays is actually in the book itself. She sets out an idea for where her bit could lead, and then says, I am, frankly, in a complete muddle as to what has happened, and have tried to write a chapter that anybody can use to prove anything they like. Not strictly according to Sayer's rules for the story, perhaps, but an illuminating insight into the difficulties of trying to wrap up a story where a dozen people have a hand in the plot. The Floating Admiral was enough of a success to enable the Detection Club to rent two small rooms in Soho in central London, their longed-for club meeting rooms. The authors also went on to work together again throughout the 1930s on subsequent collaborative novels and collections, although as far as I can tell they never repeated the precise round-robin format of The Floating Admiral. Perhaps it was just too stressful. There was more fiction, though, in the form of Ask a Policeman, non-fiction essays about true crime in The Anatomy of Murder, and the unusual Six Against the Yard, in which six authors wrote perfect murder cases for a retired Scotland Yard detective to critique. The practice of making these collaborative books slowly fell out of favour as the founding members of the club drifted away or died, but a couple more were published after the Second World War, including the round-robin No Flowers by Request in 1953. Short story anthologies have been more popular publications for the club in recent years, presumably because they're easier to write and organise, and are just as good at bringing in funds. Because the Detection Club does still exist today, although not in exactly the same form as it did when Barclay, Sayers, Christie and co. were writing about poor old Admiral Penniston, it no longer has rooms in Soho, but it does number some of today's top novelists among its members, and they meet a few times a year for dinner and shop talk. And in 2016, a loving tribute to the original round-robin enterprise was published in the form of The Sinking Admiral, a collaborative crime novel about a dilapidated seaside pub and its unfortunate landlord. There were a few key differences in approach from the modern club members. For instance, no one author is identified with a single chapter but the introduction rather explains that a synopsis and outline was worked out at group meetings, and then different writers wrote particular sections or scenes according to their own skills or interests. It's not really a round-robin in the strict sense either, because it wasn't passed around and added to sequentially. However, it's an enjoyable modern crime novel, with some nice vintage touches and references to the original, and certainly reads much more coherently than the original effort. For all that I applaud Dorothy Alsea's strictness about the format, she wasn't exactly making it easy for her fellow authors. But then perhaps that was the point. She wanted a challenge, to stretch herself and her colleagues and see what they could do together with detective fiction that might have eluded them as individuals. Some might criticise the murder mysteries from this time as formulaic, but there's absolutely nothing predictable about the round-robin novels from the 1930s.
Most of the time, even their authors didn't know who done it. This episode of She Done It was written, narrated, and produced by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find more information about all the books that I've mentioned in the show notes for this episode at shedoneitshow.com forward slash round robin. There, you can also read a full transcript of this and all the other episodes. One more reminder before I go to take part in the audience survey and possibly win a copy of a detective novel. Head to shedoneitshow.com forward slash survey to do that. I'm so grateful to those who've already done it. It's all really useful information that will help me make the show better and keep it running long term. I'll be back on the 3rd of April with a new episode. Next time on She Done It, Nio Marsh. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.